we're going to segue, we're going to get into the message here this morning. So if you guys are new here, uh, we've been going through a little series through the book of Galatians. That's where we find ourselves today. So Galatians chapter 2, why don't you guys crack your Bible, open up there, chapter 2, take a look at about verse 11. Uh, I'm going to read the passage and I'm going to pray and then we're going to get to work on the passage that we're going to be taking a look at here today. Uh, so pick it up about verse 11, go down about verse 14 and then pray, we'll get to work. Paul says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eaten with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, they also acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was out of step with the truth, of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Uh, Father, we ask you right now that you'd help us to understand this passage. God, we need your help. We need your assistance. And God, more importantly than anything at the end of the day, we want to make sure that our lives are in step with the gospel. We want to make certain that we are living in sync with the gospel. And if there's areas in our lives that are not in alignment with it, in sync with it, in step with it, that you would help us to be confronted in a loving, kind way by your word to straighten our lives back up within accordance to it, by submission to your spirit, to live the way that you desire for us to live. God, not so that we can boast in some sort of religious moralism, but rather, God, that we can be humbled by the fact that you helped us that's not only by grace that we've been saved, but it's by grace that we're sustained and that we just recognize our full, complete reliance, not only for our salvation, but for our day-to-day walk is completely a gift from you. Because of that, we can be humble. We don't have to live feeling threatened by other people. As a result of that, we can love people. We can be the way the church is meant to be, loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another. So help us to be that. Help the gospel to have its implications worked out and lived out in our lives the way that you desire for them to be. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. What we're going to be taking a look at here today is, is really important. It's kind of a, a section in the, in the scripture that really has to do with confrontation. Paul is confronting Peter as he makes the statement here and I think what what Paul's trying to do one of the reasons why Paul's making the statement here plain is he's communicating to a group of believers that are living in a region called Galatia it's a ancient area part of the world called Asia Minor we know it today as modern day Turkey and Paul was a church planner he went into these areas planted churches and then they left and when he left there is this uh, special interest group let's pull, let's call them that And the special interest group was all about making sure that people were Christians in accordance with their strict guidelines, their strict rules, their strict uh, means of observance. And so these guys would come in after Paul left a particular region, and they basically started inspecting. 
They kind of whipped out their clipboards. Everybody kind of works middle management. They're walking around the church. After the church service, they're walking around their clipboards, making sure you're circumcised, making sure you're living according to the laws of Moses, making sure you're acting Jewish, making sure that you're wearing the particular types of clothing that you think that they think are right, making sure that you, you know, have the particular type of Bible translation that they claim to be right, making sure that you read your Bible as often as you should, making sure all these rules, regulations, speculations are basically being followed. And what's going on is basically the church went from being joyful, full of love for Jesus, full of love for each other, full of love for people outside of the church, to being a church that's now hypercritical of one another. They're hypersensitive to, you know, you know, did you hear brother so-and-so? I heard he's not circumcised and he's going to church. You're kidding me. He's going to church? He's not circumcised? What type of a Christian is he? Well, I heard about so-and-so and he's, you know, he's using a, you know, NIV instead of the New King James. You've got to be kidding me. Someone's got to rebuke him. You know, that type of mentality is like people are just getting frustrated. Rather than Jesus being the main focus point of everything, now it's, you know, is everything in accordance and strict alliance to everything that these religious Judaizers, special interest group people told us about. And what ended up happening was you had this church that was once joyful and celebratory because of the cross, because of the grace of God. Now they're all introspective. They're very... Um, exclusive, they've got their own little tribe and their club and their own specialized handshake and matching sweatshirts and unless you have all the same things along with them, you're not part of the club and you're made to feel very isolated, made to feel very bad and so Paul's whole point I think in writing back to these people is saying look, the gospel, even though it's easy enough for a child to get, at the same time living it out in terms of its implications in our lives can be a little bit tricky It's complex. It can be hard. Because one of the problems is, is we have a hard time just simply receiving grace. We have a hard time receiving gift, a gift without feeling like we've got to do something back to repay that gift. It's a hard reality that especially something like salvation, God showing favor to us, really living that out and then extenuating love, grace, compassion, kindness to others outside of us. In other words, what we would call the implications of the gospel. That's hard to live that out. In other words, let me give you an example. If God forgave you this massive sum of a debt that you've accumulated over your life, and you're like, this is awesome, God's rad, you know, salvation's awesome, and yet you realize you've got somebody in your life that you hate. You're bitter with them, you're all angry with them, and you're like, what'd they do? They stole my Bible back when I was 12, and I've never forgave them for it. Really? And you're still living with that grudge? You're still holding that against them? Paul's whole point is like, the implications of the gospel is if God forgave you so much, we should be willing to forgive others the little debt, comparatively speaking, to what God, what we owed God. Those are the implications of the gospel, the way the gospel works itself out in our lives. And so Paul's deeply concerned that this church is falling out of sync, falling out of harmony, falling out of rhythm with what the gospel is intended to do within our lives. It's just very easy to fall out of rhythm because we ultimately start walking go to the beat of our own drum, which is not in sync with God. So we've got to be careful. And so Paul's point that we just read is he's like, look, even Peter... Even Peter fell out of harmony with the gospel. This is, how, this is how easy it is to miss it. How easy it is to get out of step with the gospel. Does that make sense? 
So Paul's basically writing this and tells us this little story, this little cameo experience to basically remind us that, look, we need to be vigilant for the gospel. We need to be not only looking at our own lives with regard through this lens of the gospel to see if we're walking in harmony with the gospel, but we also have to be quick to look at others within our community, within our fellowship, to make sure that we are a community walking in harmony with the gospel. This doesn't mean that, you know, we all kind of take up our own little clipboards and start walking around and become like these little gospel checkup people. That's not the whole idea. But the reality is, is that if we're in harmony, if we're in fellowship and love with the com- within the community of Christ, then we really should care about how the gospel works itself out. We really should care about the implication that this has, implications this has upon us as a community of Jesus people, a community of Jesus followers. That the gospel should be what's being worked out in our lives. So Paul, in short, contends for the gospel. All right, and notice I didn't say Paul's being contentious for the gospel. Some young people, you know, especially guys, especially guys between ages 18 to like 23, they get this confused. They're like, I thought I was supposed to be contentious for the gospel. No, you're not supposed to be a jerk. You're not supposed to be prideful and arrogant. I'm not talking about the little guy that likes to go out in the farmer's market and start getting in arguments everybody over little silly things. That's being contentious for the gospel. There's a difference between being contentious and contending. We're supposed to contend for the gospel, which means that we should be willing to take off the gloves, to hit the mat, to do what we got to do to make sure that the gospel is preeminent. But there's a way to do that that's in step with the gospel, and there's also a way to contend for the gospel that's actually not in step with the gospel. That actually adds more to the problem of being out of step with the gospel. So the guy that walks around, he's all prideful, arrogant, kind of has the mentality of like, look, me, my tribe, my homies, we know what's up, we know what's right. All of you don't, you're all wrong, you messed up, you don't do things right. That's actually not in sync with the gospel. It's actually not. Arrogance, pride, spitefulness, the sense of pompousness, that's not in sync with the gospel. It's not in step with the gospel. So in actuality, even though you may think you're fighting for the gospel, you're fighting, you think you're fighting for the gospel, you're fighting for the gospel with weapons that are actually carnal. So really, you're not promoting the gospel at all, you're promoting more flesh. So there's a way to do it that's right, the way that Paul, I think, is doing it, and there's, kind of gives us some uh, implications in the text as to how we can do it as well. And there's a way to do it that actually promotes more fleshliness, less gospel-centeredness. So with that being said, we're going to take a look at at least three things why, <coughs> why we should contend for the gospel. Why we should contend for the gospel. Take a look at the first one. Now I know it says treat, because I don't know how to spell. That's my fault. Uh, but it means threat. It's supposed to be threat. Wait a minute. Someone told, did someone fix that? Someone fix that? What? There we go. I don't know how that happened. Okay. There we go. Yeah, there we go. I, uh, but anyways, you get the idea. So you can laugh now. That's fine. Once you see it, it's all good. Okay, threat. All right, I'm like, threat? I think that's how you spell threat. I'm really bad at spelling anyhow. My wife's like, I know. Please pray for him. Um, so the first thing that we want to take a look at is the threat of contradiction. The threat of contradiction. Here's what basically takes place in the story. Take a look at verse 12 to 13. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they'd come and drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party and the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray in their hypocrisy. 
So what's going on in terms of this contradiction, what you need to understand is Paul's telling this story, he's relaying this story that probably takes place sometime after um, in the chronological storyline of Acts, uh, sometime after Acts chapter 10. And so what that means is that here you got this church. So he's actually talking about another church, not the church in Galatia, but another church in a region called Antioch. Antioch is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It was sort of the first main outpost of Christian work. It kind of became a very large church, prominent church. Uh, what's unique about the city of Antioch is that it was a, a mixed breed of people. You had Jews and Gentiles. There was a large contingent of Jewish people living there. So there was a large synagogue there. Uh, you can look at different ruins of the city today, and there's a lot of uh, uh, ruins of a, of, a, of a large Jewish synagogue. But there's also a lot of Gentile people. So it's a unique city in that you have um, not only Jews and Gentiles, uh, but they're all together. So this church in Antioch is very unique. So what you need to understand is that the first church that, resi- that existed in Jerusalem was uniquely and exclusively Jewish. There were no Gentiles people there. All of them were, Je- all of them were uh, Jewish, meaning they all basically dressed very similar. They probably all would have worn similar robes. Culturally, they were Jewish. They all would have kind of had the, um, the sideburns, the long sideburns. Like if you kind of seen like Hasidic Jews probably living in Brooklyn or something like that. Probably similar to that. Maybe not exactly the way they did, but similar to that where there was a uniformity amongst them, the way that they looked. That's probably the way that the early church was there in Jerusalem. But the church in Antioch looked very different. You had Jews that were not as steeped in Jewish tradition. Meaning, these were Jews. They loved God, they loved the uh, monotheism of Judaism, but they weren't as strict in terms of dress and code and whatnot, that, whatnot. they probably still would have maintained kosher laws, meaning eat, eating certain foods or abstaining from certain foods. But in the church, in this community, in this gathering of people, what you didn't have is you didn't have the segregation of Jews over here, and you know, women over here, uh, males over here. What you had is you had Jews, Gentiles alike, hanging out together eating food together. This was radical. This never happened. This kind of would have been like, if you lived in the South, and made this illustration already in the, point, in the past, but in the South, like right after the Emancipation Proclamation, can you imagine, like walking into a restaurant and, and blacks and whites are all hanging out, playing pool together, eating food together? It just didn't happen like that right away. If it did happen, it probably happened within churches, certain churches, not all churches. But even in churches, you still have black churches, and white churches, and they wouldn't allow people to sort of, you know, cross-connect with each other. But in Antioch, what you had was you had Jews and Gentiles alike hanging out together, eating food together, fellowship with one another. And so it was really unique. It never happened before, ever, in any social setting, ever, in the entire world. Because the world has always been divided by social uh, class, by how much money you have, economic class, by gender, male, female, tribe, um, culture, background. The world has always been separated by different clans and tribes and different types of um, marks and boundaries. Always. It's not new. But what had happened was when the church began to be born, those boundary lines started falling down. So in other words, you had Jew hanging out with Gentile. You had males hanging out with females in church. That never happened before. Even in today in Jewish synagogues, women meet in a different room than guys. That's the way it is. And the reality is, is this is the very first time the church had ever done this. You had slave owners hanging out with their slaves in church. Like worshiping at sometimes, in some cases, you even had slaves who were like the pastor of the church. Can you imagine that? You're walking in, and like you're the pastor of the church, you're the slave, and your owner comes in. Like, 
He's like, I own you. Not here you don't. Not here you don't. We're one. Out there, I may be your slave. In here, we're one. I'm not even better than you as a pastor or a leader or anything. We're one in Christ. We love the same God. We're basically brought down to the same level, same common level in Christ as who we are. So that's what was going on in Antioch. So you kind of get this picture. And one of the big things that was sort of part of the cultural uh, fiber of the day was food. I mean, everybody loved food. I mean, today in our culture, it's not really the same. I mean, in some ways, we catch little glimpses of this, like around Thanksgiving. This comes around, and Thanksgiving comes around. Who do you hang out with? You hang out with the people you love the most. And that's not always family, right? So you're like, family, like, kind of right answer, but not really. But if you really want the right answer, you hang out with people you love most. And sometimes, if even family, you don't get along that good with them, it makes for a hard Thanksgiving, but the reality is there's something good about just sitting down, having a good meal, talking, not feeling like you're in a rush, but you can just last for a long time. That's the way they were in the, back, in the east back there, is they would sit down for hours, eat a long meal. They'd you know, drink coffee and drink glasses of wine and enjoy food and have good dessert. And when they're done, some lady would just come out of the woodwork, bring in a whole other platter of food and say, eat up. And you're like, I'm too full. And if you don't eat, then you're offending them. So you just keep eating more. You just keep eating, keep going and going and going till you literally roll out of there. And that's about it. And you just, people loved hanging out with each other. And it was just part of this whole cultural system of love and celebration. And when Jesus came, it gave him even a whole new layer of, or dimension to it because it's like, we're eating. We're eating together as a big group. Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, slave, free. We're all hanging out. We're all eating together. And this is a little piece of heaven because it reminds us that one day we're going to be with King Jesus. We're going to be sitting with him in heaven. We're going to be having a big meal. There's not going to be social, social distinctions or social classes. We're all going to be one. Even though they exist here on this planet, here on this earth, and they separate some of us beyond these boundaries, we won't have those in the new heavens, new earth because Jesus will be king. There won't be any emperor. It won't be Caesar. There'll be Jesus. And, and it's a way for them to just experience and enjoy that right then and there. So along comes Pete. All right, from Jerusalem. He comes up. He's like, I hear great things happen. I hear you guys are having these great feasts. You Jew, Gentile alike are hanging out with each other. Pete's like, I, I love this. I want to see what's going on. Like, Pete's all welcomed in. They're like, Pete, come on in. Pete's hanging out with them. He's eating food. This is Peter, you know, one of the apostles, Peter. He comes walking in. He's enjoying what's going on. He's like, what's, what's an amazing smell? They're like, we're cooking up some bacon. It's like, bacon? I've never had that. What is it? It's a little bit greasy. Try some. This stuff's amazing. Pete's just hanging out, eating bacon. He smells some more things. You're like, what is that? It's like ribs, spare ribs. What's that? It's the rib of a pig. Rib of a pig? You've got to be kidding me. How do you eat that? Here, put a little bit of sauce on it. Throw some barbecue sauce on it. It's like, this is phenomenal. What is, what, what, what is this? This is linguiza. It's a little spicy. Watch out. Like, this is amazing. Pete's just sitting down, eating. He's enjoying himself. Warm himself by the fire. They're enjoying one another's presence, company, drinking some lemonade. Someone comes out of the woodwork, you know, with like shrimp cocktails. Like, what are these things? Shrimp cocktail. I've heard about shrimp. I've never eaten them before in my life. Try one. Pete's eating shrimp cocktail, spare ribs, linguisa, drinking lemonade, hanging out with a bunch of Gentile people. It's absolutely just a piece of heaven. He's loving it. He's enjoying it. There's no like weird boundaries. And I remember Peter grew up Jewish. So Peter would have grown up never hanging out with Gentile people, never eating unkosher food. 
But because of the liberty of Christ, because of the freedom that's in Christ, because realizing these Gentile people that are non-cultured Jews, they're part of my family, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what they eat, I'll eat with them, I'll hang out with them. So here's Pete hanging out with these guys, enjoying fellowship with them, not feeling as if they're sort of subpar human beings, but that rather they're part of the body of Christ. Jesus loves them because Jesus loves them and he accepted them, so I love them and I accept them. That was Pete's mentality. Until, until the story makes a radical transition. It basically says, all oh, this is really good. Everything great's going on. Again, it says, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And then this transition point, but, you always got to love it when this come into the sentence right there. But when, when they came, he drew back. So in this setting, you know, I would imagine here's Pete kind of hanging out in the back, eating barbecue spare ribs. He sees this guy. These guys kind of come walking in. They got these long robes and the, you know, the curly sideburns and whatnot. And these guys are like, who are those guys in the dresses in the back and these long sideburns? Pete's like, oh, no. He realizes that he, he might be found out because these are people from his church back home in Jerusalem. And this is the special interest group that's all about the rules, all about the legalities, all about the straight lines that they themselves carve out and set up. They're all about that. So Pete's kind of like, ah, this is not good. So Pete cleans himself up a little bit and kind of ditches out. Everybody's like, where'd Pete go? I had no idea where Pete went. And all of a sudden, Pete's kind of hanging out with these guys and like, Pete, yo, you left your hot dog over here. He's like, I ain't eating that stuff. He's hanging out with these guys. Judas are like, what's that on your face, Pete? He's like, that, that looks like barbecue sauce. I ain't barbecue sauce. Nope. What's that in your back pocket? He's like, is that a bottle of barbecue sauce? Like, oh, oh, you know, I got found out. Like, like Pete now is like pulling back out of fear of what these guys are going to say. He, he's like, no, nah, I wasn't eating with these guys. Because these guys are like, Pete, you know what, what about, you know, what about the sandwich we made for you? We were experimenting. We've made some good stuff for you. Put some extra, you know, barbecue sauce on. This is good stuff. And Pete's like, you know, you guys shouldn't be doing that. Y'all know this is not good. They're like, what do you mean y'all know this is not good? He's just been hanging out eating with us. He's like, yeah, y'all know how God feels about this stuff. What do you mean how God feels about this stuff? You were just eating sausage with us. You still got shrimp cocktail on your shirt. What are you talking about? How God feels about this? It's contradiction. It's because Peter fell prey to this fear of man that he begins to pull away and begins to live in this contradiction. Rather than living out the gospel. Let me try to explain what this means. If God, if, if God accepted us Let's put it in Peter's sense. If God accepted Peter, not because he was Jewish, not because of his culture, but simply because of Jesus, then why would Peter now choose to accept others on the basis of their culture and on the basis of their, their lifestyle in that particular sense? Why? See, let me, let's put it in the personal realm. If God looked at you and I and did not treat you and I according to what our sins deserve. But that's how God dealt with us, through Jesus, through the cross. God did not give to us what we deserve because of our sins. Then why is it that we have the propensity to look at others in their sin and treat them in accordance to their sin? Okay? This doesn't mean that there's not a place for correction and rebuke and things like that. Remember, that's what Paul's doing here. But the point of the matter is, is that there is, for the most part, an inconsistency. 
we have this tendency oftentimes to basically choose or determine who we will hang out with, who we will invest in, who we will spend time with, solely based upon certain cultural things, certain things that we like, certain things that we associate with, and then we separate from those that we don't particularly like. Now, there's nothing wrong with having, you know, particular tastes or an interest in, you know, different personality types and things like that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with cultures. I mean, if Jews want to live culturally Jewish, that's fine. If Chinese want to live culturally Chinese, that's fine. If Salvadorians want to live culturally Salvadorian, that's fine. But the moment you start placing religious significance to that, saying God particularly likes the Jewish flavor of Christianity better than the way the Chinese throw it out. Now you're idolizing a culture. You're raising it to a standard or a level that it becomes the hub of everything. And the same thing is true that what ends up happening is when that becomes sort of idolized or elevated, now everything becomes about that culture. Everything becomes about that issue, that concept, that method, that idea, or that particular like or dislike, rather than about Jesus. This is the big deal. That when Jesus gets marginalized and we begin to focus upon a particular style or particular liking or particular thing that's That may be fine, may be good, but when that becomes sort of the sole point by which God accepts us or receives us or shows grace or favor to us, then now we are walking in a a place that's dangerously close to walking out of step with the gospel. Very similar to what Peter did. So this is the point that we got to basically be aware of. This is where we have to understand. Because at the end of the day, if we begin to find ourselves in a place where we're basically saying... The driving reality of my life is not walking in step with the gospel. There is something. Every one of us have something that's a driving reality of our lives. What is it? What is the driving value of your life that drives you, moves you, compels you, causes you to do what you do? You wake up in the morning because of it. What is that thing? That's the point. See, basically Peter's actions were in essence saying... I'll accept you if you eat kosher, if you live according to the particular standards by which these other guys are imposing upon us. And it's not in step with the gospel. So therefore, Paul rebukes him. So the point that we need to be aware of in our own lives, and I mentioned this before, is that the gospel is not just simply the ABCs to get us into this thing we call Christianity. The gospel literally is the A to Z. It's how we live it, how we work it out, how we live out its implications upon our lives. Because again, like I said, in short, if God has accepted us solely on the basis of Jesus, then should not we also accept other people solely on the basis of Jesus? So the problem is that we look at them and we're like, oh, I don't have the same type of hair color as I do. They don't wear the same type of jeans I wear. They don't look the same way I look. They're not the same race that I am. They're a different denomination than I am. They have a, you know, what, a different Bible translation than I do. They like different Bible teachers than I do. And we begin to say, I refuse to hang with them. You're basically sending a very contradictory message that God accepts people on the basis of Jesus and your church style your background, your culture, your Bible translation, the way that you teach your Bible, your denomination. You get the idea? And it's inconsistent. 
It's inconsistent, and it's contradictory, and that's why, one of the reasons we have to be on guard, why we have to contend for all of this, because ultimately this is what will end up happening. Look, at the end of the day, we find ourselves in danger of contradiction, because what ends up happening is we find that sometimes the gospel does mess with our ability to maybe even be promoted in a job. So we tone down the gospel. We mess with, we realize the gospel has a tendency to mess with our relationships. So we kind of dumb it down a little bit. We tone it down a little bit because we're a little bit nervous. We're like Peter. We fall back out of fear. And rather than being clear in what we believe and what we understand of what God has done for us, because God has not spoken to us in ambiguities. God has spoken to us with great clarity. There's no question. We shouldn't be looking at and wondering, does God love us? The greatest sign of God's love was the cross. That's why Paul says, if we ever question the love of God, all we need to do is simply look at the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. That's how deep and how wide the great the love of God is for us. That God did that for us to wash, cleanse, forgive us of our sin. So therefore, since God loves us, solely because of his son Jesus, that means that I can actually love other people solely on the basis of Jesus. That means, that means practically, if I'm hanging out with somebody and they're of a radically different religion that's not Christian, I can actually sit down with them and not feel threatened. I don't have to feel threatened. I don't have to feel like I gotta whip out my like, gospel machine gun and start blowing them down. I'm not threatened by them. I mean, I love them. I want them to know truth. I want them to know Jesus. I do know that all of the religions and all their types of gods, idols, things that we worship in this life actually bring our souls into bondage rather than bringing them to liberty, rather than bringing them to freedom. So because I love people, I want them to see the freedom of Jesus. But see, if I try to present the freedom of Jesus by throwing a bunch of laws upon them, am I actually giving them the gospel or giving them new religiously sanitized laws? You get the idea. If the gospel's about freedom... We've got to keep it about freedom. Some are like, well, what about someone sinning? Again, if we try to sort of manage the gospel, manage grace by saying, yes, Jesus, but you've got to do this and that and walk according to this particular path and listen to these preachers and read these books and follow these guidelines and these materials and these rules, we're, we're not walking in grace anymore. We're just walking in new sanitized types of rules that are actually restrictive and destructive and dehumanizing. And they speak nothing of the cross and the power of grace. Instead, the gospel says, you know what Jesus did for you? You know how much God has done for you because he loves you? And when your heart is enamored by that and you realize God did that for me, you know what ends up happening? Is I want to walk in grace. I want to walk out the implications of the gospel. Not out of coercion, not out of force or because I've been manipulated by some fancy preacher. Because I love Jesus. Because I love God. I want to forgive other people. Not because someone yelled at me, but because God forgave me. God forgave me such a big debt. If God forgave me such a big debt, the little grudge that I have against somebody, that thing's worthless compared to the big debt that God forgave me. See what I'm saying? Big difference. So we got to be careful about the threat of contradiction. The second thing I want you to notice is the threat of corruption. We see this in verse 11 and 13. I'm going to look at this very quickly. It says this, but when Cephas came back to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
or guilty, some translations might be. Verse 7, and you were running well, who hindered you? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, Paul writes back to these Galatians and he says these, and you were running well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? So the implication is that somebody came in and hindered you. Somebody came in, it was a leader. Typically what ends up happening in most churches, Bible studies, groups, whatever, somebody will come in who claims to be a leader, someone will come in who claims to have some sort of sense of authority or leadership or says, hey, God spoke to me, I'm the prophet, I'm the bishop, I'm the pope, I'm the pastor, I'm the leader, I'm the self-proclaimed you know, spokesman for this group, uh, I'm the head of this group, and they begin to speak. And what ends up happening is rather than speaking Jesus and the gospel, they end up promoting their ideas and their concepts and their causes and the things that they claim to be important. And what ends up taking place is these people then kind of get brought into this um, corruption of this leader rather than the freedom that comes through Jesus and the cross. So in other words, everything becomes about this particular uh, message of this leader. And there's two particular ways in which leaders can mislead or misguide people into the sense of corruption, where now it begins to spread. I've seen this happen in churches, where churches were groups of people, like even in the Galatian group, where these people loved Jesus, they were on fire, they loved Christ, and all of a sudden some guy comes in, he's like, look, I'm here to tell you about how to get into the deeper life of Jesus. Deeper life, what does that mean? It means that you've got to pray more, I'll show you how to pray the proper way, there's a proper way? Yeah, of course there's a proper way. Well, who, who holds the answer to that? Oh, of course I do. You've got to buy my books. Oh, so i got to buy your books, and that's how I learned the proper way to pray better. Well, well, well there's a better way to worship. Well, well, who knows the mystery of that? You know, well, I do, of course. I wrote the book on that. And for $9.99, you can get the book, and I'll even throw in a free DVD. It's wonderful. Really. And, and so what ends up happening is you have these teachers that come in, and are like, I'll show you the deeper way to the deeper life. Pray these prayers. Walk these particular walks. Live according to these new rules. Did you hear that? New rules. New ways. Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus your intense prayer life. Jesus plus your daily devotion. Jesus plus your evangelism. Jesus plus how you dress. Jesus plus the translation of the Bible you use. Jesus plus whatever it is. The moment we start adding Jesus plus something else to that, we, we no longer have gospel. We have the beginning stages of corruption. Again, I, I said this two weeks ago. There's, we, we love reading our Bibles. We absolutely believe in prayer. But we don't find ourselves, we are not justified by praying. We are not justified by our Bible reading. We're not justified because of translation we use. We're not justified by the preachers we listen to. We're not justified by the books we listen to. We are justified by Jesus alone. And when we start adding to these things is when corruption spreads. Because now the group's all about, like, did you read this book? This book's what's awesome. And now you start reading this book and you, find, you look at other people that aren't reading this book and you're like, that's ah, too bad. It's too bad. It's too bad you guys ain't deep in Jesus the way I am. Him and I, man, we're tight. Him and I, we pray all the time. We talk with each other. I'm tight. I pray. He answers. It's all good. It's too bad. You, you too can have this prayer life. Read this book. It's all good. You witness just like I witness. You start leading people to Jesus the way I lead people to Jesus. It's too bad you're not doing that. It's a subtlety that comes in, that creeps in, that basically starts creating the subpar category of Christians, 
And the gospel says, we're all one. We're all one. Two extremes that oftentimes take place. One is legalism. Legalism is basically too many laws, too many rules. The second form or error is liberalism. Not enough restraint. Not enough restraint. Legalism, too many rules. Do this, do that, follow this, you'll be fine. Liberalism, not enough restraint. In other words, you just sin. Once you start sinning, once you start doing things, uh, taking advantage, living out in a very liberalistic type of a life, uh, you at some point will start stealing other people's freedoms. So Paul's going to deal with this pretty hard in just a few chapters. But the point of the matter is, is this is why it's so essential that we keep the focus on Jesus. If someone comes in and starts preaching things other than, or Jesus plus this, Jesus plus my rules, Jesus plus these observations, Jesus plus my insight, be careful. Because it's very possible you are on the path, or that church is on the path, or that group is on the path to some form of corruption that basically starts threatening the very life of the gospel itself. At the end of the day, we ought to be taking and making our shape so that where we look like Jesus, when we start looking like the leader of that group, that's not good. It's not good. I don't want people at Calvary Slow to be like me. I don't. I really don't. Don't be like me. I've got way too many flaws, way too many faults. I'm, I'm, I've said this before. I'm not the tour guide on this bus. I'm not up here saying, look, I got this whole thing figured out. The map's right here in the back of my hand. I know where I'm going. Look out here. Here's what's going on. I, I don't, I'm literally a fellow journeyman on the bus. The Holy Spirit is the tour guide. All right? We're just trying to figure it all out. This is you sh- churches that's begin to take the form of some sort of leader where every, everything is sort of like this pyramid to try to look like the dude. The dude should be Jesus, period, that everybody should be wanting to look like. Not somebody else. It's corruption. We gotta com- stand up, fight for the gospel because of the threat of corruption. Third thing is this, the threat of deviation. Verse 14 says this, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before of all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? The word that's actually there in the Greek that says walking in the step of or not walking in the step of, it's kind of an interesting word. It's the Greek word orthopodeo, ortho, some of you might be familiar with that. Ortho is like um, orthodox, it's the idea of straight, something that's straight. Go to an orthodontist. Uh, the reason why you go there is because your dentists are crooked. And uh, you need them to be straightened out. Um, podeo is actually the Greek word for foot or walk. So orthopodeo basically means to walk in a straight path. What you need to understand is that the gospel basically uh, projects these straight lines. Uh, the implication is that the lines that we live according to are actually crooked. You need to know that. The lines that your heart, my heart, sets out in front of us where we begin to think, I'm just going to walk as straight as I can. You wonder why, why you're not walking very straight? We sing that song, prone to wander. Oh Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it for your courts above. It's classic. It's, pic- it's a great picture because what ends up happening is we don't walk straight. We're always walking crooked. And the reason for that is because our hearts are crooked. Our hearts are crooked. And even as regenerate, meaning we are saved, even once we're saved, Even though we may get the gospel in a theoretical manner, the reality of living the gospel out 
in its implications is very tough. It's very hard. I mean, that's why some of the reasons, you know, people are like, Christianity is hard. Of course it's hard. It's very difficult. You can't do it on your own. You need the Holy Spirit's power. you got to do it with the Holy Spirit's power. On your own, you're just going to get bitter. It's one of the reasons why sometimes people come to church and like the church is full of hypocrites. You know, interestingly enough, there are a lot of hypocrites in the church, but at the same time, one of the prerequisites to actually being a Christian is you got to admit that you're a failure. So in a sense, the church doesn't have as many hypocrites as we oftentimes tend to think. Because most of us all admit some sort of failure. That's a prerequisite to coming in. But we need help nonetheless. We need help. And the gospel sets these lines out in front of our lives that we are to walk according to. Walk straight according to. So questions about forgiveness. Well, the gospel speaks to forgiveness. The question of generosity. Should I be generosity or should I be Scrooge? We should be generous. God's generous. He was generous with you. He gave his only begotten son. Son died for you. So therefore, ah, I guess the answer is I should be generous since God was generous. Well, should I love my wife or should I be angry with my wife because she burnt my food last night? I think you should be loving to your wife. Why? Because the gospel said that's what Jesus did for you. You burnt far more than what your wife burnt to you. You burn every bridge with God. And yet even though you burn every bridge with God, God still loved you enough to send a son to die for you. In the same way, even though your wife burnt your food, you can lovingly lay your life down for her just like Jesus laid his life down for you. You see those lines? You see those lines? Generosity, forgiveness, love, compassion. Well, should I have compassion? Or should I just you know, put my nose up against everybody that's homeless or marginalized or hurting or messed up? Well, of course. Well, I mean, the question is, how did God treat you? You're pretty messed up. Your life's jacked up. How did God treat you? Did he thumb his nose up to you? No, he loved you. He came to you. You weren't seeking him. He sought you. So the gospel sets lines out in our lives and says, this is why the marginalized, the hurting, the orphan, the widow really should matter to us because that's us. We were the prostitute. We were the marginalized. We were the hurting. We were the orphan. We were the covenant breaker. We were the unfaithful spouse. That's all of us. And if God showed and demonstrated great kindness, love, mercy, generosity to us, then the gospel basically calls us to walk in the same pattern, these same lines, orthopodeo, to walk straight in these lines. And the problem is, is that this was in jeopardy because Peter was basically breaking relationship and fellowship with Gentile people, sending confusing messages, leading to corruption, and then ultimately deviating off of this path. Look, one of the best ways to know if you really get the gospel right is if your view of the gospel is, look, Jesus and me, we're tight. My little homeboys, we know what's up. We do it right. We speak right. We preach right. We live it right. And everybody else out there is all pretty messed up. They're heretics, losers, sinners, kindling for hell. They're going to be sausage on God's barbecue someday. But you know what? We're saved. We love Jesus. We're good. We're all in. We're tight. You don't get the gospel. You really don't get the gospel. Because you're arrogant. And you're prideful. And you look with despite upon everybody outside your little club. Or the illusion of the club that you formed. That's not in sync with the gospel. You're like, how do I know? Because Jesus isn't prideful and arrogant. I mean, if anybody had the goods and wanted to flaunt the goods, it was Jesus. 
I mean, he could have flexed and it would have been all over. He didn't. Instead, he was humble and loving and kind. And so if your interpretation of living the gospel out is arrogant, you look at everybody with spite, you have your little tribe, your denomination, your group, your methodology of doing stuff, and you look at everybody that doesn't do it the way that you do it, with arrogance, pompousness, pride, you're out of step with the gospel. You're out of step. You're not walking according to the straight lines of the gospel. And you need a realignment. You need to be rearranged according to the straight lines of the gospel. One of the best ways to know if you're in the gospel is if you have this overwhelming reality that here's the driving reality. God's up here. I'm down here with everyone. The great divide is not me, God, and them. The great divide is all of us and great God. But great God came down to rescue me, to save me. And I'm humbled by that. I'm honored by that reality. I didn't deserve it. I did nothing to earn it. I can't pay it back. So my response now is to love everybody around me in the same way that God loved me. Unconditionally. You get that? It's hard living that out. So the questions are now finally as we wrap this up, how do we contend for the gospel? Three things. First of which, we got to base it all on biblical authority. Basically, Paul is not saying, look, Peter offended me, and I got my feelings hurt, and so I just rebuked him. That's not what's going on. Paul's just like, look, Peter was out of sync with the gospel. But I love Peter. I mean, this is Peter. He's my man. And Peter's a leader in the church. He was one of Jesus' good friends. And he says, even Barnabas. I mean, you've got to understand that the relationship between Paul and Barnabas was tight. Barney was the first guy that ever introduced Paul to the rest of the crew. I mean, Paul and Barnabas were tight, close, good friends. Paul says, even Barnabas bought into this whole deception. Even Barnabas found himself walking out of alignment with the gospel. But Paul says, listen, my whole authority is not trying to just drum up some sort of, you know, spiritual whatever, prowess, strength, might, and sort of usurp that authority over them. Paul's like, look, my authority is only given to me by the gospel revelation that's already been revealed to me. That's it. In other words, our judgment, our statements, our communication of any gospel truth really should only be an echo of God's. We're not making this stuff up. We're not trying to drum up new revelation, new truth. It's just merely to echo what God has already communicated. The second thing in terms of how to contend for the gospel is we've got to do with humility and love. Later on in Galatians 6.1, Paul's going to say, brothers, if anyone is caught in a, tres- in a transgression, you who are spiritual, you got to restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on your own self, lest you too self become tempted. Paul's whole point is, look, you got to realize, because we live in a world that's full of traps, full of traps, all of us are prone to fall in these traps. It's really kind of an echo of what Jesus already said. He says, look, if you're going to go around judging other people, you better make sure that you don't have a big tree sticking out of your own eye if you're just searching for a little speck of sawdust in your brother's. Jesus' whole point is, is, you know, make sure that you clean out anything's going on in your life first and then humbly go to your brother or sister who needs help because maybe they don't see it. This really elevates the importance and significance of why the body is important. Christianity, westernized Christianity, for the most part, in a lot of ways, has become exclusively about me and Jesus. Me and Jesus. You know, me and Jesus. It's all about Jesus and I. 
and, it's, and, and there's a reality to that that's important. That yes, Jesus died for me. There's truth to that. But Jesus died for you to bring you into a body. The community. There's personal verses that have communal repercussions. Communal implications. And this is one of those examples. That because we're part of a body, we should care. Do you care? Do you care about roommates that are not living in sync with the gospel? Do you care about your family members that aren't living in sync with the gospel? That their life, maybe they claim to be a Christian, but they're not living in sync to it. They're sending confusing messages. There's contradictions all around their lives. Do you care about the contradictions in your own life? Because if you care about it, humility would dictate you would go to, you find somebody. If you're married, you sit down with your wife. I actually heard some of this past week. We've got 130 plus men coming in every Tuesday night learning how to be biblical men. It's awesome. It's amazing. You see 130 guys in this room learning about what it means to be a biblical man. Someone told me this past week, this one guy went back to his wife and asked his wife, sweetheart, how am I doing cultivating the marriage? Yes. Some of you women are like, does that happen? I, I think it does happen. Godly, humble men actually ask those questions. They ask your, those questions to you. Am I cultivating the marriage well? And I love that because you know what that means? It means there's a humility about that that basically says, look, I, I, I don't want to live in some sort of deception thinking I got this whole thing figured out, I'm fine, everything's just fine, everything's just dandy, and I know what I'm doing. But a humility has to say, I think I'm doing okay, but I don't know. Sweetheart, honey, am I doing okay? Are there areas I can do better? Are there areas I can improve? Because at the end of the day, I, I want the gospel to win. Not just out there, but in my family. I want the gospel to win. Men, you should care about this. You should care about wanting to make sure that the gospel wins in your family. And the way that that works is sometimes you may need to sit down with a mentor, an older man, a man who's got a little more years uh, and experience on you, or maybe sit down with your wife and just say, how am I doing with the gospel in this marriage? How am I living it out between you and I? Am I demonstrating forgiveness? Am I demonstrating love, kindness, compassion, patience? Or am I always impatient? God's not impatient. Am I impatient? if God's patient, I'm impatient, there's an incongruity there that I want to make sure it's straightened out. That's hard. Last thing is this. The way that we contend for the gospel is with uh, gospel centricity. Here's what I mean. If our main goal is to just simply correct improper behavior, we may get that objective, but you may never get the gospel. Let me tell you what I mean. You can have a group of people that are all about living sanitized, living good. Everything on the outside looks really good. You know, you, you, you're like a guy. You're walking in the street. You tip your hat off to some old lady. Help her cross the road. Everything's good. Everything looks sanitized. Everything looks nice. Your behavior might be all good. None of you guys cuss, smoke, tell dirty jokes, drink light beer. And everything is just sanitized. You, you, you are walking in some sort of reform of moralism. And you think you're fine but you may completely be out of step with the gospel. So it's not just about moralistic behavior. It's not about behavior modification. It's about walking in step with the gospel. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about sex outside of marriage. Homosexual sex, adultery, whatever you want to call it. Any type of sex outside of marriage. 
Is it a sin? Of course it's a sin. But even more so than that, it's out of sync with the gospel. Here's why. God designed us to be in relationship with him. And the Bible teaches that the reason why we do things that are out of step with the gospel is because we think that we're creating or recreating a gospel unto ourselves, a good news. The good news is if I conquer that hot chick, then I will have good news. If I sleep with more than five boyfriends, I will have good news. It will be good news to me. My life will be satisfied. There will be some sort of completion there. I will be made whole. And so sex becomes sort of this means of accomplishing that. It is your functional savior. What you actually are living out is some form of a false gospel, false good news. When in reality, at the end of the day, sex, for example, something like that, is really our attempt to add something to our life that's not God. It's our attempt to somehow give ourselves an identity. We say, if I have sex, if I'm you know, well-known in this community, and people know that I'm able to conquer and I have sex, I will have an identity that I'm, I'm a good lover. For some, it might be this idea. It might not be that at all. It might not be an identity at all. It might be the sense of self-independence. It's like maybe you grew up in a home where everybody wore buns in their head and you were lived in this home where mom and dad never let you even wear shorts. It was just hardcore strict. And the moment you turn 18, you're like, I'm out of here. I'm going to prove to the rest of the world, particularly your mom and dad, who are really old and ancient, that I can have sex. I can be liberated and I can do what I want to do. And so it's this idea of independence. Independence is your functional savior. If you have independence, especially sexual independence, then you are living in the good news. Or it might be for some, for particularly guys, sometimes it's this idea of conquering. Have sex, it's your way of conquering somebody else. You feel powerful, you feel strong. Your gospel, your good news is you flex. You feel strong, you feel good about yourself because you can conquer lots of women. You're recreating a gospel. It's out of sync with the gospel that God did. At the end of the day, None of those things, none of those sexual exploits ever deliver. They make lots of promises, but never deliver, ever, ever. But the gospel says, I deliver. I give my son. The gospel says, I will lay his life down for you so that you can have life. The gospel says, I will make myself poor so you can become rich. The gospel says, I will allow myself to be stripped of everything so you can be robed in righteousness and riches. You guys understand the implication of the gospel? This is what God has done for you. This is how big, how great, how almighty, how powerful, how wonderful God is. And if all we do is want to try to create a sense of modification of behavior without telling them, look, it's out of sync with the gospel then all we do is create moralism or an anti-moralism where people resist and fight even further against that and we never get to the heart of the gospel. Parents, I'll wrap it up with this. If this is the way that you raise your kids in your home, just teaching them a moralism apart from the gospel, you may end up getting kids that are complicit and compliant and look good and actually may even be like little trophies for you. So when you go out, people actually pat you on the back and it strokes you, you feel really good about yourself because you got these little saints. But I'll tell you, to be really quite frank and honest with you, internally, they're midget demons. They hate you, they hate God, 
and they will one day fight, and the moment they turn 18 or they run away, they will actually begin to live out exactly what's in their heart. And what's in their heart is anger towards God, anger towards you, and they will begin to become, act out who they've always been. A better way is to walk them through the gospel. Why God cares about where we fill our cup at. Why God cares where we bend our knee to worship. Why God cares with whom we worship. Why God cares. It's not just about dealing with the fruit. It's about dealing with the root. The root of everything in our lives has to do with the gospel. Either we are finding satisfaction in God who gave himself for us, or we are finding our satisfaction in a false gospel somewhere else that always will fail to deliver. And we're walking out of step with it. We're going to respond. I'm done, by the way. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond by giving worship back to God, loving him, thanking him because of what he's done for us. We're going to respond by partaking of communion. And we do that because the communion is basically... Uh, the gospel in a narrative format. We eat the bread, we drink the cup, because it reminds us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He laid his life down for us, he had his body broken for us, his blood was spilled for us. As his way of saying, want to know how much I love you? I love you so much, I'm going to lay my life down on your behalf, for you, to bring you into life, to set you free from bondage. And so that the gospel now will begin to work its way through your life. So if you partake of communion, Paul says to do so in a worthy manner, which means to confess sin. Make sure that if there is bitterness that you're harboring in your heart towards somebody, something, if there's areas in your life that are not in sync with the lines the gospel sets out, this is the time where you repent, you confess those things before God, and you say, God, I want to partake of communion, but these, these areas, these areas that are not walking according to the straight line that the gospel sets out, and I want to walk according to the gospel. I want to walk according to the straight lines. Then you repent, you confess, you ask God to wash you and cleanse you, and then you partake of communion. If you're here and you're not a Christian, my greatest desire is that you would trust in Jesus today. Ask God to wash you. Ask God to cleanse you. If you want to talk with somebody afterward, you can chat with me. There's other people. Grab someone next to you. They're raising their hands. Good chance they're a Christian during worship. They love Jesus. Ask them. (laughs) I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to give our worship and our hearts and our loves back to God. We'll partake of communion. If you're here and you've got kids in their back, um, I strongly encourage you to go pick up the kids. You can bring them back in here if you want for worship, uh, but to relieve some of our workers would be a real blessing for them as well. So let's pray and worship, give back, praise and honor and thanks to God. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We bend our knee, submit our hearts to you. God, living out the gospel is it's not easy. It's hard. The implications demand death in some ways in our life. It demands death to our own, our own freedom, our own will in some ways, or what we think is freedom. But really, it's, it's just another form of bondage. So God, we, we ask you right now, just in this, in this place right now, we, we know the Holy Spirit is here, present, active, moving. So God, in this place, we just we humbly confess sin to you and we lovingly trust in Jesus.